As the world confronts the coronavirus, PreserveCast is pleased to bring you special content all this week focused on preservation, health, and community revitalization, topics that are timely and optimistic. Each special episode comes from an event we've held over the past few years and speakers who come from a wide variety of backgrounds and disciplines. In today's episode, we'll hear a keynote address by Storm Cunningham, an author whose work is leading the way for partnerships between preservationists and environmentalists. Storm Cunningham is the publisher of Revitalization News Online and the author of The Restoration Economy, Rewealth, and the forthcoming Planetary Renewal, A Strategy to Reverse Our Decline. Enjoy this special episode and stay strong. Together, we'll get through this. So, let me get the bad news out of the way. Um, Bad news is that I have got a ton of slides that you're going to have to wade through over the next 60 minutes. Now, the good news is that almost all of them are either photographs or cartoons. And the better news is that it actually has a point. This is not a PowerPointless presentation. Now, here's my point. Anybody get it? Silos. Silos, thank you. Yes. Uh, let me ask a question. How many people here think they know more about historic preservation than I do? Don't be shy. No false modesty. Okay, you're all wrong. <laughs> I'm not a historic preservation specialist uh, or expert. Uh, historic preservation is just one of dozens of silos I need to work in uh, with in the uh, work I do all over the world uh, for community and regional revitalization efforts. So uh, this isn't a talk about historic preservation. <clears throat> when uh, Megan and Margaret invited me to speak here today, their instructions were clear. Get us out of our historic preservation silo. So that's my mission. <clears throat> now you might be wondering, for those of you who weren't even aware that they were in a silo, um, why would I want to bust out of it? I put all this effort into getting into this historic preservation silo. Why, why would I want to get out? Well, let me give you an example of the power of busting silos. Over the past decades, you know, three or four decades at least, the people who manage water for cities, whether it's going into agricultural irrigation or drinking water, like these canals that run from the Colorado River all the way to Los Angeles to give them drinking water, <clears throat> they've been bemoaning the fact that such huge amounts of the water is lost to evaporation. The sun beats down on these concrete canals and they lose, you know, just billions and billions of gallons. Now, at the same time these water management people have been bemoaning the loss of their water to evaporation, the renewable energy people have been bemoaning the fact that to build a huge solar array means they either have to put it on arable land or on wildlife habitat. I mean, it might look like you're not doing any damage when you put a huge solar array in a desert, but a desert is an ecosystem. There are a lot of plants and animals that need exactly that ecosystem. So what would happen if these water folks climbed out of their silo and talked to the renewable energy folks? Well, this is what would happen. That's what they're doing in India right now. <clears throat> they're covering up all of their water canals with solar panels 
cuts down on the evaporation. And at the same time, they're building huge amounts of renewable energy capacity without covering up any farmland or wildlife habitat. That's why people need to climb out of their silos. So the question is, are there any similar opportunities in historic preservation? Now, when my first book came out, The Restoration Economy, in 2002, I documented uh, eight silos of restorative development at that point. Uh, and these are kind of economic silos. These are the kinds of projects that get funded. They're not scientific or uh, technical silos. So the uh, first one was ecosystem restoration, which normally has the goal of increasing biodiversity. Second one was watershed restoration, which is normally focused on increasing the quantity or quality of freshwater. Third one was uh, fishery restoration. Traditionally, over 10% of the global economy is based on fisheries. Next one was agricultural restoration. There's a huge regenerative agriculture movement underway right now worldwide, which basically has three goals. One is agricultural techniques that actually rebuild the topsoil rather than depleting it, like industrial agriculture normally does. Um, another goal is increasing native biodiversity, especially native pollinators, so not as dependent on these European honeybees that are having so many problems these days. And the third goal is to sequester carbon. They've actually found out that regenerative agriculture has got more capacity for sequestering carbon and fighting climate change than, um, than reforestation does. Next one is brownfields remediation, which when I started writing this book in 1996, the EPA had only just the year before started working on brownfields and creating their brownfields program, uh, which is now you know, tens of billions of dollars a year just in this country. <clears throat> Infrastructure renewal was the next one in all its different flavors, you know, stormwater, uh, you know, drinking water, power, transportation, telecommunications. And uh, the last one was heritage restoration. Uh, sorry, next last one was heritage restoration, which uh, needs no introduction here. And last one was catastrophe reconstruction, uh, which unfortunately is a growth industry these days. But of course, those of you who actually work in community revitalization know there's a heck of a lot more to revitalizing a community than just renewing stuff. You know, there's all the human elements involved. <clears throat> so this is going to be a six-part talk. I'm going to start off with a little historic context, just a little bit, uh, back up about maybe 12,000 years or so, um, that will introduce a mode of economic growth that literally has no downside. Second, we'll be talking about how to move into that mode of economic growth by moving from D to RE, which I'll explain in just a second, to create a local restoration economy. The third will be a strategy, kind of a generic strategy for revitalization that will provide you a path to climbing out of silos and be making historic preservation an even more powerful driver of community revitalization than it already is, and it's already powerful. Uh, so the first, of that, first step of that strategy is repurposing assets. Oftentimes the first step to renewing something in order to get the money to renew it is finding a new purpose for it. So then you renew it, which is the second step. And then the third step of the strategy is reconnecting. This is the one that most people miss. A lot of places are really good at repurposing assets and renewing assets, and then they forget about properly connecting them, which is why I was so happy to see what's been done with Carroll Creek 
you know, reconnecting all these neighborhoods. And the last step will be an example or two of putting all this together to create resilient prosperity, which really is what most people want. You don't just want a burst of revitalization, you want it to last. So welcome to the Anthropocene. How many folks here have never heard of the Anthropocene? Oh, well, okay, well, welcome back from Uranus. Um, now that you've returned, uh, you might want to Google it um, because you'll find there are tons of books and magazines and articles and conferences and courses and universities uh, on the Anthropocene. For the last 12,000 years, we've been in a mode that scientists refer to as the Holocene, which is defined as the point at which humans started affecting the world around them. And we've been growing our economies during this time through basically three modes. We've been extracting virgin resources. We've been sprawling, you know, cutting down farms to create, I mean, <laughs> cutting down forests to create farms, uh, paving over farms to sprawl cities. And we've been fragmenting. We're really good at fragmenting stuff, you know, putting dams in rivers to prevent fish migration and putting highways through cities to sever neighborhoods. Um, now, during this time, we've been growing our economies quite well. Uh, that's the uh, vertical axis here. But at the same time, we've been reducing our resource base. And uh, if we continue in this mode, which I refer to as adaptive conquest, you know, because we're basically adapting the world to our needs, which was no big thing when there were just a few million of us. But you know, now we're adding a billion people every 15 or 16 years. And uh, this mode of adapting the world purely to our needs is starting to bite us in the butt. So if we stay in this mode of adaptive conquest, then what's going to happen is we'll go into long-term economic and resource decline, because eventually, no matter how much, much of our economy is based on buying apps and iPhones, it all comes down to natural resources sooner or later. You know, it takes literally thousands of pounds of resources, including you know, a huge amount of water to make one iPhone. <clears throat> the good news is there's an alternative mode I refer to as adaptive renewal, which is based on the opposite of what we've been doing for 12,000 years. It's based on repurposing our damaged and old assets on renewing them and reconnecting them. And the good news is you can't do too much of this. You know, I've never uh, encountered a, uh, an ecosystem that was too restored or a place that was too revitalized. Uh, so this is what we've been doing for uh, the last 12,000 years. And again, no big thing. That's how you grow a civilization. There's nothing evil about creating a city out in nature. Um, sometimes they get a little carried away. Uh, this is Las Vegas, uh, which ended up with a dead downtown and just huge amounts of dysfunctional sprawl that they're just starting to try to get a handle on. <clears throat> Good news, though, in this country, we're finally starting to move back to the European model. Uh, you know, the European model is that the wealthy always lived in the heart of the city and the poor lived in the outskirts. Uh, we built you know, in the opposite way over the last uh, 100 years or so, especially since cars were invented. But now the trend is the reverse, which is good news for historic preservation, because it means a lot more mo money is going to be flowing towards older buildings. <clears throat> you might be wondering, how did this Anthropocene thing hit us so quickly? Um, well, part of it is the rate of population growth. I mean, look at that curve. 
you can't even call that a curve, it's virtually a, a, the vertical line. But it's not just the number of people we've got, it's also the per capita consumption. You know, we're consuming so much more per capita these days that you put the two of those things together and uh, it's, you know, the impact on the world is just tremendous. So, and this is what the impact looks like. Here's a scene in Bangalore, India. They've got a, a, a lake there that is so full of industrial effluent that whenever a wind comes up, it whips up into a foam that covers the city. And it might look a little pretty, but uh, it stinks and it's highly toxic. So this is, uh, this is the world of the Anthropocene for, for a lot of people these days. Uh, in China, they've got highways that are 50 lanes and still have traffic jams. This is half the highway. You notice all those cars are going in the same direction? <laughs> That's what the Anthropocene looks like when we're adapting the world to, purely to our needs. The good thing about adaptive renewal is that what we're doing now basically is adapting to our adaptations. <laughs> you know, the world is defined by our adaptations now. We're, now we have to adapt to our adaptations. Uh, here's what, and you might be thinking, okay, yeah, sure, there's always going to be some nasty looking foam color covered places in the world. Um, but there are also some beautiful pristine places, right? Uh-uh. There are no pristine places on the face of the planet anymore. Everybody in this room has Chernobyl and Fukushima in their body. So this is Bali these days. That's what it's like surfing in Bali these days, that remote, beautiful, tropical paradise. So you might be wondering, you know, we've been talking about sustainable development now for 30 years, which is a wonderful and necessary noble dialogue, but <laughs> do we really want to sustain this mess? I mean, sustainability is what we need in the long term, obviously. But right now, what we need to undo is 12,000 years of damage, or at least the last 200 years. Now, the good news, uh, the other thing, though, that we need to do is make sure we preserve the good stuff we've created, all the beauty that we've created during this time, which is what you folks do. So, here's how to better connect the work you're doing now to community revitalization, which, uh, amongst other things, is a wonderful way to get new funding. The more relevant you make yourself to the economy, um, the more people are likely to open up their, uh, their purses. So the most important single shift we need to make is in a prefix. We need to shift from D to re, from development to redevelopment, from despoilment to remediation, from depletion to replenishment, from demolition to restoration, from degeneration to regeneration, which basically means we're shifting from a de-economy to a re-economy. We need to basically stop being degenerates and start being regenerates. Now, oftentimes when we fix things, we go a little too far. It's just kind of the human nature that we tend to swing the pendulum back in the opposite direction a little too far. The good news is, as I mentioned earlier, you can't do too much re. I've been doing this work now full-time since 2002, and I have yet to hear a community say, oh my God, we've got to slow down this river restoration project. The water's getting way too clean, and there are far too many fish in it now. Or, oh my God, we've got to slow down this brownfields remediation and redevelopment program, and we're running out of contaminated properties. 
or, uh, oh my God, we've got to slow down this community revitalization initiative. Our quality of life and our jobs and economy are just going through the roof. Yeah. I've never heard that. You can't do too much re. You can do it badly, but if you're doing it right, you can't do too much of it. This guy had the right idea. Back about 100 years ago, Teddy Roosevelt said this, which until you get to that word increases, it sounds like he's going to make the usual call for, you know, let's be better stewards of the environment and blah, blah, blah. But he didn't, did he? He said increased for the next generation. He was talking about a restoration economy. His timing was a bit off. Um, nobody really paid attention. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, yeah, and as we know, timing can be everything. But here's a guy who did have good timing, Governor Brian Schweitzer in uh, Montana back in 2006, uh, after one of his aides read uh, the restoration economy, brought me out there and had him help put together a Montana restoration economy initiative. And three years later, we published this report that showed for every dollar they were putting into restoring their watersheds and their old mining sites and their contaminated rivers from the mining sites, that they were generating over 31 higher paying jobs that's higher paying than resource extraction, and over two and a half million dollars of related economic activity. And that two and a half to one ROI is actually low because other people are starting to measure it. The restorative ROI in the Everglades, they've documented over a four to one ROI on Everglades restoration for all the ecosystem services that are renewed by ecological restoration. Uh, EPA has documented an 18 to one ROI you know, for every public dollar uh, the EPA puts into helping communities uh, remediate and redevelop their brownfields, they're, they're leveraging over 18 private dollars for redevelopment. And also, by the way, saving a lot of green spaces. I think that, I think it's a four to one ratio for every acre of downtown brownfields that are redeveloped, it saves four acres of greenfields. Um, bad news is, as you can see from that slide, uh, that we don't fund it very well. You know, one Chinese billionaire just bought a house. That's about four times the size of our entire federal budget for the Brownfields program at EPA, which recently got cut, by the way. <clears throat> so my second book uh, came out in 2008 from McGraw-Hill called Rewealth. And uh, it, the first book was kind of the ingredients of revitalization, all the kinds of projects and assets you can re renew in order to revitalize a place. This book was more the recipe for those ingredients. How do you put all this together to get what communities really want, which is more quality of life you know, and better economy? Uh, in case you're wondering, by the way, that's not snow. Uh, that's the Gobi Desert, uh, which has been expanding at a tremendously fast rate now for decades. You can see that guy on the bicycle is pedaling like crazy. Um, <clears throat> You know, it's been marching on Beijing like an army, and they've been planting literally billions of trees by hand to restore the forest, to hold back the Gobi Desert. Now, one of the things that uh, that book pointed out was that a lot of communities tend to revitalize backwards. You know, uh, they uh, they'll run out there and offer free land and tax abatements, you know, to try to get employers to come because they looked at a a healthy city and they saw I have lots of employers, so okay, that's what we need. Uh, trouble is they end up with uh, poor quality employers usually and ones who disappear as soon as the tax abatements uh, run out. And of course, they're stealing employment from another town, so it's a zero-sum game. Um, the better way to do it 
is to focus on quality of life. Because, yes, it's good to have uh, those economic incentives handy when you are in heavy comp competition with another town. But what really makes the difference is when that CEO takes a look around and says, is this where I want to raise my kids? Yeah. What's the air quality like? Is it safe? How's the education? You know, that's what makes the difference in the end. It's not the incentives. Uh, they're a commodity these days. <clears throat> the nice thing is, it's a, it's a can't-lose proposition. If you put your money into restoring your quality of life, even if you don't win any employers, you got a better quality of life. Now, here's, unfortunately, the way most communities revitalize. They just do a bunch of stuff and hope that somehow the miracle of revitalization happens. And when you think about all the, what's at stake here, you know, that's a pretty sloppy way to go about something so important. You know, but they're not working from any principles or theories or found foundations or anything as to what revitalization is and how it actually emerges. Is any planners in here? Ooh, good. Anybody here enjoy abusing planners? Yeah. <laughs> That's almost equal. Um, here's a couple of quick tips for how to abuse a planner. Um, first one is to ask them to plan without giving them a vision and a strategy to plan around. Uh, the second way to abuse a planner is to ask them to come up with a vision and a strategy. That's not their job. <laughs> planning is planning. Uh, it's up to the community to know where they want to go. <clears throat> so, how you get to where you want to go, here's a generic strategy for you that'll work in almost any city, except a brand new one, like some of the ones the Chinese are building these days from scratch. But the fact is, generic strategies can work, which sounds a little weird because you're thinking, well, come on, you know, every city's got its own unique problems, its own dreams, its own challenges. How could there possibly be a generic revitalization strategy? But look, you've got a huge consulting industry out there all over the world, billions of dollars, is one generic strategy for all consultants, whether they're individuals like myself or 10,000-person Boston Consulting Group type outfits. It's a two-step strategy. One is convince clients that you know what you're doing. <laughs> the second step of the strategy is to convince them they'll be better off after they give you money than they were when they still had it. It works. Yeah. Universal Strategy for consulting. Okay, more seriously though, there is a generic revitalization strategy. And the reason you can have a generic strategy, and it doesn't mean you don't customize it to the place, but the reason you can have a generic strategy is because most places have the same basic problems. Because we've been extracting and fragmenting and depleting and sprawling for all these years, most places have obsolete, decrepit, fragmented assets. So to revitalize, they need to repurpose, renew, and reconnect the assets. It's not rocket science. But they also need a comprehensive renewal process because revitalization isn't a project. It's not just something you do and forget. You need an actual process to carry this through. A lot of places will have a wonderful visioning session where everybody walks out feeling so good that they now have a vision, and that's where it ends. Visions accomplish virtually nothing. <clears throat> Strategies are what turns, turn visions into um, actions. Visions can guide actions to the right outcomes. You know, you need a vision. You need to know where you're going. You can be 
really good at implementing and executing plans, but if it's not based on the right vision, you're just doing a really good job of getting to the wrong place. Strategies are what guide actions to success. That's the essence of a strategy. It's a method or a, te uh, or a technique that ensures success, or at least in greatly increases the chance of success. Policies enable strategic actions. A lot of places forget the policy element. You know, they decide we want to revitalize, but then they find out they're in their own way because their zoning or the building codes or whatever, their incentives are all focused on exactly the opposite. They might have incentives in place for sprawl. How are you going to revitalize your downtown if you're still incentivizing sprawl? Um, <clears throat> so you need to change the policies so they're in line with your strategies. Uh, now, plans organize actions. Now, without a strategy, though, a plan is just an activity list. Uh, and it's, there are just way too many plans out there that don't have strategies. Uh, here's, here's a good test. Um, next time uh, you're talking to a political leader or you know, whoever uh, who says, oh, yeah, we've, we've got a wonderful plan uh, for revitalizing this place, ask them, what's your strategy? If they're still talking over a minute later, they don't have one or they've got a bad one. Um, it, strategies have to be simple. They have to be something you carry in your head. If you need to go to a book to find out what your strategy is, you don't have one, or not an effective one. You need to guide your actions on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, partnerships help fund actions, especially big ones. Projects are the actions. They're the tactics that implement your strategy. And programs are what perpetuate your actions. Because sometimes you need to work at this stuff for a long time before the revitalization kicks in. You know, revitalization is an emergent quality of the complex living system we call a city. And it can't be engineered. You can't say November 14th, uh, you know, 2017, revitalization is going to kick in. It doesn't happen that way. It's an emergent quality, so sometimes you just have to keep doing it. And the only way you can keep doing it is with a programmatic approach, not a project approach. So that's your comprehensive renewal process. All of those elements are essential, but finding a place that actually has them all in place is extremely rare. There's a universal goal too. If there's one single goal that every place that needs to revitalize has, it's increasing confidence in its local future. You know, even money itself is based on confidence. You know, if you don't have confidence that a dollar bill is going to be worth something tomorrow, it's just a piece of paper. There's nothing behind it. It's just a mass delusion that, that it's gonna be worth something in the future. So that's what you need to focus on. <clears throat> because if, you don't have, if local people don't have confidence in the local future, you're gonna lose residents, you're not gonna attract new residents. You're gonna lose employers, you're not gonna attract new employers. And today's climate between climate change and terrorism and, you know, Lots of crazy stuff going on. Uh, this, you know, when uh, Andrew Young said this back in 2014, it's more true today than ever. Uh, that people are really starting to worry about uh, re uh, investing in places, especially coastal places. The vast majority of the world's economy is in coastal areas. And with sea level rise, what's that going to do to the level of confidence they have in, in uh, the value of investing in these places? There's a crucial feedback loop involved here is that the more devitalization you have, you know, job loss, decrepit buildings, that sort of thing, then the less confidence there is in the future. And 
uh, you know, and it just keeps going, um, you know, and the less confidence you have in the future, the more devitalization you get. It just feeds on itself and drags the community down into the toilet. The good news is there's a positive feedback loop that works just as powerfully that the more confidence you have in the local future, the more revitalization you get, the more revitalization you get, the more confidence you have in the local future. And you get to the point where if you had to define when is a community actually revitalized, it's the point at which that feedback loop takes off on its own and the local leaders don't have to keep pushing for it. You know, it's just everybody wants to be there. It's a cool place to be. Here's what it looks like in a simple graph. You fix up your community, that increases confidence that it's getting better, that it brings in new investment, which enables you to do more fixes. Yeah, it's a very simple loop. Now, no matter how much planning you do, how good your vision and your strategy is, there are gonna be surprises. Yeah, the fellow who painted this van, yeah, there's no way he could have predicted what was gonna happen when he opened the door, yeah. They're just some things, they're always going to take you by surprise. It's just the nature of working in a complex system. You know, don't let them get you, get you down. <clears throat> in fact, the scientists who study complex adaptive systems have found that there's a period of what they call transient chaos that tends to, a, a, a system tends to go through as it moves from one state to another state, such as from devitalization to revitalization. And the problem is that if you don't, understand that, if you're not expecting it, then as soon as that transient chaos kicks in, everybody panics and say, oh my God, we're on the wrong track here. Let's, let's abandon all this stuff. Um, so as long as you know that these behaviors of complex systems, then you can work with them a lot more uh, reliably and predictably. So the first part of that three re strategy is repurposing. You know, we humans have been repurposing stuff for a long time. <clears throat> you probably, uh, heard this uh, landfill harmonic orchestra down in Paraguay where the kids went into the landfill and pulled out stuff and turned it into uh, instruments and got a whole orchestra going. So repurposing is something humans have always been good at. And sometimes it's done on a grand scale, like in Barcelona when they took this old bull ring, because bullfighting is illegal in Barcelona and Cal Catalonia now. Um, they uh, repurposed it into a spectacular shopping center. Now, you can also have very mundane repurposing, such as New York City, rather than spending millions of dollars pulling out all those obsolete telephone booths, turning them into Wi-Fi hotspots. Uh, Scotland's got no shortage of whiskey, but they've been doing it so long that they do have a lot of distilleries that aren't needed anymore. And uh, this one just got repurposed uh, a few months back into a uh, business incubator. Uh, you're probably familiar with the old post office in Chicago. They've been trying to repurpose that for a long time. It's now finally underway. And repurposing old buildings is actually becoming a, a very effective strategy for a lot of cities that are trying to deal with their affordable housing issues. And just a month or two ago, they announced the old historic Thomas Edison factory in New Jersey is being uh, repurposed as a mixed-use development. Uh, the Texas, Seguin, Texas uh, Main Street program. How many Main Streeters do we have in here? Yeah, excellent. Uh, love Main Street. Um, they uh, actually bought this old hotel and are going to turn it into affordable uh, housing. And this is smart, not just because they'll probably get a nice return on the investment, 
but because they realize that residents are the key to downtown revitalization. This is another way that communities tend to do things backwards. You know, a mayor will go to a, uh, a city that's been revitalized and they'll see all the restaurants and the retail and say, oh, that's all we need. If we just have restaurants and retail, we'll be revitalized too. You're confusing the symptom with the cause. You know, retailers and restaurants chase customers. You know, they'll show up if you've got the customers. If you don't have residents in your downtown, you know, what usually happens uh, is, uh, you know, when you've got a depopulated downtown and they get on this retail kick, they'll offer all kinds of incentives and subsidies to people to move their uh, re uh, retail, um, shops into uh, these empty spaces. But because there are nobody living down there, a year later or whenever the person's life savings run out, um, they, uh, they, they close up shop. What you need to do is get the residents down there first because residents have resilience in terms of dealing with devitalized places. They get a really good deal on a loft in the downtown. It's no big thing if there isn't a drugstore across the street, you just hop on the bus or hop in your car and go to a shopping center. But a retailer can't do that. Uh, you know, they've got to have their customers nearby. Uh, you've got all kinds of mills in South Carolina and North Carolina now that are being repurposed rather than torn down. Uh, this one's in Greenville, turning into apartments. I was just talking yesterday with some folks in Rocky Mount, North Carolina, where they're creating a whole kind of fermentation-themed development in a, uh, in a mill down there in Rocky Mount. Um, there's a lot of beer-oriented beer development in the world today. And... Uh, Repurposing can also serve cultural needs, like down in Richmond a few months ago, they announced they're turning in this old armory into a black history museum. And probably the most iconically, iconically ironic um, one was when the Bush administration had the brilliant idea of uh, putting Homeland Security in a mental asylum. Now, not everything needs to be repurposed. You know, the FBI building in, in the district uh, was uh, horribly constructed, uh, and, uh, but you know, at least it was ugly. Um, you know, some places just aren't worth repurposing. You know, you're better off just tearing them down. Somebody, did the architect of the FBI building uh, walk in? <laughs> yeah, well. Um, <clears throat> in my not-so-humble opinion, every once in a while I run across a place that's really not worth preserving. Um, but, you know, those sorts of things are matters of opinion, uh, you know, beauty in the eye of the beholder and all of that. Um, but other places are very obviously worth preserving, and most people wouldn't even consider tearing them down, unless you've got some really crazy mayor like the one in New York City who tore down Penn Station while nobody was looking. Um, the problem we've got these days is we're building an awful lot of crap. It's crap on day one. Uh, you know, this is the drive-in uh, area of my local bank, you know, where bumpers and mirrors have been bumping against the uh, pillar here. Nobody's ever going to repurpose this building. It's going to be in a landfill in 10 or 20 years. You know, we need to build as if we're planning to stick around on this planet. Uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, we need to improve our building codes too. You know, when a developer tells you that everything they build is to code, you know, what they're telling you is that if it was built any worse, it would be illegal. 
Yeah. So we need building codes that actually create a restoration economy for our kids. You know, we've got, everybody wants to live in a solid restorable building, but you know, they don't want to pay for it. So we end up, you know, veneers of brick and veneers of stone. You know, an architect friend of mine says America is suffering from venereal disease. <laughs> so that's repurposing. Second part of that strategy is renewing. You know, sometimes you need to renew places because they've deteriorated over a long period of time. Other times you need to renew places because of uh, a sudden catastrophe, you know, like the 2011 Virginia earthquake, which actually knocked over a picture frame on our mantle. Uh, but we recovered. <clears throat> now here's a place, that, uh, an old uh, qu uh, quarry, gravel quarry. And when the husband died and was shutting the quarry down, the wife didn't want to leave this ugly scar on the world. So she started planting stuff in there. And she discovered, because of the quarry was this deep pit in the ground, that it was a microclimate. And she could grow all kinds of stuff there that wouldn't grow anywhere else in the area. This is what it looks like today. Anybody recognize that? Ah, okay. Oh, yes. Thank you. Bouchard Gardens in Vancouver Island. Um, this is now the largest private employer on Vancouver Island, and Vancouver Island is not a small island. You know, so that's a, a perfect example of really renewing a place. Here it is on an even larger scale. You know, County Cornwall in England is traditionally the most economically depressed county in England. Uh, it's a, basically it used to be all mines, and most of the mines shut down, uh, leaving not only horribly scarred natural resources, but no jobs. This guy, Tim Smits, came along and uh, decided to uh, restore one of these old quarries, and this is what it looks like today. It's called the Eden Project. And it's a combination of environmental education and Disney World. And it's now the largest private employer in County Cornwall. Uh, has anybody here ever been to the Eden Project? Ah, excellent. Yeah, just gorgeous place. And uh, not a pretty short drive from the coast, too, in the Cornwall, co Cornish coast. It's just uh, one of those most spectacular coastal areas in the world. In fact, the Eden Project's been so successful that the Chinese have hired the people to put it together to create an even larger Eden Project on a huge coastal area that was destroyed by salt farms and shrimp farms. Uh, here's a friend of mine who uh, is kind of a professional regenerate. Um, as soon as he uh, got out of landscape architecture school, he decided uh, he wanted to restore streams and wetlands for a living. Uh, in fact, uh, how many, anybody here know Keith? because he was based not too far from here uh, for a long time. He's in South Carolina now, but still has operations up here. So uh, first job Keith, or one of the first jobs Keith got was here in Maryland. This is Spring Branch. He got a job to uh, restore, whoops, sorry about that. Uh, restore a four mile stretch of Spring Branch. And that's what it looked like when he got the job. Now, as you can see, this is a, a former natural stream that used to wind its way through the countryside, burbling, gurgling, whatever they do. Um, <clears throat> and it got re-engineered according to an engineer, engineering philosophy known as FSE, uh, which stands for flood someone else. Um, the, uh, 
what, what you do is you, you straighten it out so the storm waters accelerate uh, as fast as possible. And then you wrap it in concrete to make sure none of the water gets absorbed into the ground. So the flood for the next community down the line is far worse. So uh, this is spring branch about nine months into the process after Keith had done what's called uh, restoring the fluvial dynamics. This is what it looked like about two years into the process after he had uh, got the native plants replanted. And this is what it looks like today. That's about as close to doing magic for a living as I know of. But this isn't just about benefiting the crayfish and the salamanders and the butterflies. This is also property value enhancement. You know, imagine you've got a block of apartments or offices right next to this creek. Which one of these views is going to add more to what you can charge per square foot? That one or that one? Now, Richard Moe, I'm sure you all know, uh, got this right, this whole repurposing and renewing Thing. He got it right uh, all along uh, when he went around the country preaching that the greenest building is the one that's already built. <clears throat> Unfortunately, folks at U.S. Green Building Council didn't really get that green message for a long time. I was involved in the U.S. Green Building Council in its earliest days back in the early 90s when they were first putting lead together. I was the guy in the back of the room saying, well, what about existing buildings? And these were all architects, you know, they had no intention of working on somebody else's legacy. They wanted to build their own legacy. Um, so uh, they weren't much interested in that. And uh, I was also jumping up and down about, well, what about uh, location? Doesn't it make, isn't it greener to stick it on a brownfield in the middle of the city than instead of 30 miles out of town that people have to drive to? Ah, don't worry about that. It's hard to get architects out of the building envelope mentally. Uh, so as a result, when LEED first came along, they uh, didn't value repurposing and renewing very highly. Uh, they got, gave you one credit. Uh, I don't know why I'm pointing there. <laughs> uh, they gave you one credit for building this bicycle rack. And you know how many credits they gave you for restoring and reusing that building? One credit. Uh, they've changed that a bit. <laughs> but nowhere near as much as uh, they're not waiting, still not waiting it properly uh, anywhere near as heavily as they need to. Uh, but they are starting to wake up. You know, they do have a lead for existing buildings now, and, but it took way too long. Now, I've got nothing against bicycle racks. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I did a talk in Belgium not too long ago, and uh, this is uh, the town of Ghent. And they take bicycles seriously there. Yeah, so, you know, specifying bicycle racks. Uh, you know, this is the local train station. <laughs> um, so, you know, but you know, we don't do a real good job of specifying bicycle racks in this country. <clears throat> Last part of this three-step strategy is reconnecting, which is in many cases is uh, the most essential of, of them all. You know, we've got a lot of places that have been severed by really bad urban planning, especially car-oriented planning. And this whole, there's a whole science of reconnecting. You know, again, it goes back to the complex adaptive systems uh, research that, um, you know, and I won't get into this slide, except to say what the research shows is that it's not just a matter of more connections are better. A place can be overconnected. You know, systems can be, have too many connections as well as too few connections. There's an ideal kind of bell curve sort of situation there. <clears throat> Everything's connected. 
the um, you know, we, we like we like to think you know that uh, we, we we can do something without affecting everybody else. You know, but the fact is everything's connected, and the more we realize that, uh, the better the world's going to be. For instance, Main Street people, downtown revitalizers, are finally starting to realize that if you want to revitalize the downtown, you got to think outside of downtown. Yeah, a lot of the customers are coming from the suburbs, so you need to revitalize the corridors to make the process of getting downtown more pleasant and, and easier. One of the most, probably the biggest single trend in reconnecting is reconnecting to water, uh, which um, you guys obviously get here in Frederick. And there was a book that came out a few years back that if you want to read about why water is such a magic revitalizer, this, this is a great uh, background. So all over the world, cities are reconnecting to their water. Rotterdam is the largest port in Europe. They want to keep it a working port, but they're redeveloping in such a way that it actually becomes a recreational asset for the community too, rather than purely working. Moscow's reconnecting to their water. Um, because they severed the community from the water with a badly planned highway, the same so many other cities did. Uh, historic canals are being restored in London. Uh, in fact, just uh, uh, last week, uh, the government of Canada announced that they were putting, I think, $170 million into restoring five historic uh, canals in Quebec. Uh, Here's one. These people have seen the revitalizing power of, of restoring a canal. These folks in Worcester, Massachusetts are dreaming of doing so. Their canal, like so many, got paved over. And uh, so this is an artist's rendering of what they're hoping for. If they can restore that canal uh, like you did with Carroll Creek, uh, then they can restore all the historic buildings around it and revitalize this neighborhood. <clears throat> And again, just a few weeks ago, there's a proposal to daylight and restore all 45 rivers that run through Mexico City. And if you spend any time in that gorgeous place, uh, you know the one thing they're missing is water. You know, none of their rivers are daylighted. There's one or two little short stretches here and there, if you really look hard. Uh, and that'll do wonders for revitalizing a city that's got huge numbers of historic buildings, uh, a lot of times in, uh, in neighborhoods that could use some revitalization. Can anybody here name a river in London? All right, good, Thames, name another one. Don't worry about it. I asked that question in London and didn't get an answer to the second one. Um, the fact is that London has 14 rivers. 13 of them are completely buried. And a lot of them run through devitalized historic neighborhoods. Uh, so now there's a plan to restore daylight all, 14, uh, all 13 of those other rivers to help revitalize those neighborhoods. Uh, one of the most uh, well-publicized uh, of these efforts was in Seoul, South Korea. The Cheonggyeon Stream is an ancient stream that ran through the heart of Seoul. And you know, if you read Korean literature, poems, you know, children's stories, it's mentioned. Uh, but in the 50s, they paved over it, turned it into an ugly urban highway. And uh, obviously that really reduced the quality of life uh, for the people living next to all this noise and pollution. So the value of properties right next to it went down, including historic buildings. And that's what it looks like today. Uh, they pulled out the highway. They, before they did that, they increased the public transit so there wouldn't be traffic problems and restored the river running right through Seoul now, beautiful green space. And in the process, all these other 
kinds of assets uh, got uh, restored along the way, including the historic buildings. Now, here's a lesson for any aspiring politicians we have in here. Any of those? Nah, they never want to admit it. Um, this guy proposed restoring the Chungishan, pulling out that highway, and promising to do it when he was running for mayor, got him elected mayor of Seoul. Successfully doing it, got him elected president of South Korea. So restoring, revitalizing places can be a really good political platform. You know, water is this, there's a magic to water that if, if you have it, use it to the greatest extent to revitalize the place. If you don't have it, look for it because you're probably standing on something. It just needs to be exposed. And uh, like I said, you guys got it. I was planning to talk about it at this point, but since uh, uh, the mayor had to take off, I, uh, I mentioned it earlier. Uh, Dubuque uh, gave a talk there uh, a couple of years ago for the community foundation. And, oh, no, actually it was for the city itself. Uh, they do an annual sustainability conference and they took me, took Marie and I on a great tour of the whole city. And this is, this used to be the industrial center of the Midwest other than Chicago. And uh, they've done a wonderful job of revitalizing uh, their Mississippi River waterfront, but they didn't stop there. Most communities would. But then they looked around, they said, wow, you know, this water is powerful stuff. Well, how else could we use it? And they found out they had a really depressed neighborhood that was constantly flooding. So they restored the buried stream, which solved their flooding problem, as your Carroll Creek work did here, and it revitalized the community. So anytime you see a, a depressed place with historic buildings that needs revitalization, first thing you should think of is where's the water? Now, obviously, as I said before, there's a lot more to revitalizing places than just fixing the stuff. This is a favela in Sao Paulo. And uh, you know, when you've got that kind of poverty right up against that kind of wealth, <laughs> uh, you're not gonna have a healthy society. And any work you're doing on revitalizing in this space purely on fixing stuff is probably not gonna go real far. Luckily, there's this great trend underway right now uh, as people are redeveloping public housing is to create not just more affordable housing, but green affordable housing and even better mixed income housing. You know, getting the different economic classes living together again. You know, we've become so uh, ghettoized, if there's such a word, in this country. We've got rich ghettos and poor ghettos, you know, and healthy societies have everybody living together doesn't mean they're all living in the same quality house, but they're not all isolated by economic class. So what happens when you put all this together? <clears throat> now I've been talking about busting silos, but the fact is a lot of expertise and a lot of resources are housed in those silos. So maybe what we should be doing is following my own advice and reconnecting silos, not busting them down, so what happens when everybody works together? All the silos come together. Uh, how many people here have walked the High Line in Manhattan? Okay, if you haven't, get, get on a bus or the train and get up there as fast as you can because this is maybe the world's premier urban revitalization project. And uh, the quick story here, I've got a, in my workshops, I do a much longer version of how this all happened. But the quick story 
is that there was an elevated railway running down the west side of lower Manhattan. Uh, the railway went defunct a long time ago and uh, just left the trestle there rusting away as this ugly eyesore. Um, are there any non-ugly eyesores? Um, and uh, Mayor Giuliani decided to spend tens of millions of dollars to tear the thing down. And a couple of local citizens climbed up there one day illegally and looked around and saw, saw that the wind had deposited all this soil and seeds on top of the, uh, the railway and it looked like a park. And I say, wow, look at this, this is gorgeous. Um, you know, can we, yeah, and look at the view from up here. Yeah, maybe we should talk about preserving this as a linear park. And uh, Giuliani wasn't interested in it, but then Bloomberg came in and he loved the idea. So I uh, got behind it. And uh, <clears throat> that's what it looks like today. This long, beautiful linear greenway uh, connecting all these formerly pretty much separated neighborhoods uh, yeah, separated by distance, if nothing else. Nobody wanted to walk through them. And uh, the, the High Line, everybody wants to live and work next to it, so it more than doubled the, the value of all the uh, vacant buildings that used to be right next to it. Nobody wanted to be next to that rusting hulk, and now everybody wants to be. So a lot of historic buildings got repurposed and renewed as a result of the reconnection that this uh, High Line created. Um, Highline has uh, created over $2 billion in new economic activity. The city is getting over a billion dollars of revenues from it that they never had before. Um, it's the second most popular cultural attraction in New York now, 5 million visitors a year. And now cities all over the world are going forth and doing likewise, including right there in Queens, where they found another old uh, railway they're turning into uh, what they call the Queensway. <clears throat> But it didn't stop there. When they completed the third section of the High Line, it ended right at the Hudson Rail Yards. Now, New York City has been trying to do something with the Hudson Rail Yards forever. And the idea was, well, we need the rail yards, so why don't we just build over it, make them underground rail yards, uh, and do what they call airspace or air rights development. And uh, they could never justify it economically before. But then the High Line arrived. All these tourists and all these buildings getting revitalized all around them. And all of a sudden, the numbers made sense. And now the largest real estate transaction in New York City uh, history is taking place on top of those Hudson Rail Yards, thanks to that connection with the High Line. So there's a, there's a story there of repurposing, renewing, reconnecting that has so many different levels. They repurposed an old railway. They renewed it into a park. It reconnected the neighborhoods, which revitalized the neighborhoods, leading to, you know, it, it, if you look at it, it, there are so many different levels of repurposing, reconnecting, and, uh, and uh, renewing going on there. Uh, I don't want to ignore policy entirely. You know, policies are powerful, as, you, as I'm sure everybody here knows, the power of the historic tax credits. If you, of course, you've got to turn your policy into funded legislation uh, for it to work. <clears throat> but that's why policy is part of that comprehensive renewal process I was talking about. And China's finally getting it. Uh, you know, China's been kind of a poster child for bad urban planning. You know, tearing down a lot of the historic stuff originally because they're ashamed of their colonial history when Germans and English and people were in there. Um, taken over their country. <clears throat> uh, but now 
they've just introduced five new urban policies that are being, being applied nationwide. They're going to make their cities pedestrian friendly. They're putting in growth boundaries to cut down on sprawl. They're focusing on mixed use redevelopment, putting in more public transit, and more focus on historic restoration and reuse. It's a whole new China coming down the road. Now, revitalization is a wonderful way to bring people together. It's a very nonpartisan sort of thing. People who are at each other's throats about other things tend to agree on bringing something back to life. Of course, whenever you bring people together, it's not always hugs and kisses. <clears throat> and there are some people who just really don't want any change. You know, they're just not interested in any new way of thinking. You know, and there are some people who, who really, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you do or how good you are in public engagement. They just want to disrupt stuff. I call these people slinkies. Uh, everybody here remember slinkies? Uh, yeah, okay, yeah. I call them slinkies because these folks aren't good for much, but yeah, they sure put a smile on your face when you push them down the stairs. <laughs> but you got to work with them. Everybody's got to work together these days, uh, despite all the uh, political rhetoric. Uh, the good news is that most of the political rhetoric uh, happens at the national level, sometimes at the state level. At the cities, people tend to work together a lot more uh, effectively. And if you think anybody here thinks they've got public and, uh, engagement problems, <laughs> uh, I, I did some work in Jerusalem a few while, years back, you know, where, which, as you know, is divided into the East Jewish side and the West Arab side. And you think you've got public engagement problems? <laughs> Forget about it. <laughs> You got it easy here, believe me. Trouble is when these slinkies get into leadership, and we, that's when you can really start holding things back, as Megan was telling me earlier about what's happening in Cumberland right now. Um, but even the places that seem like basket cases from a planning standpoint can really get their act together with the right leadership and the right ideas. You know, Atlanta, you know, traditionally considered, you know, a sprawl poster child of not just bad planning, but no planning, is now doing this 40-mile repurposing of a rail line to reconnect their neighborhoods, you know, with a green uh, trail that's just revitalizing uh, like, like crazy, you know. So, uh, believe me, if Atlanta can do it, anybody can do it. So, uh, if you'd like to read more about that comprehensive renewal process, if you go to revitalizationnews.com, um, just click on Renewal Strategy Guide there. That's a permanent resource. Uh, it'll be there anytime you need to read it. <clears throat> and just uh, to refresh your memory, that's the comprehensive renewal process there. And uh, if you want to keep up to date on uh, all the latest things that are happening, revitalization, restoration, resilience, and all that sort of stuff, there are over 2,600 articles in the library here, all of them recent articles, uh, the oldest ones, uh, just goes back to 2009. And uh, if anybody knows of a, a regenerate who's doing some really good work, uh, who, whose story is inspiring, uh, let me know because I might want to tell their story in my next book, uh, Revitalizing Careers. So to wrap up, you know, the Anthropocene's got a lot of problems. Uh, the land of opportunity is burning you know, in California. And a lot of the suffering is hidden. 
I mean, there's so much suffering among wildlife um, and, uh, of course, uh, the poorer people of the world uh, that, you know, we don't understand just how bad the Anthropocene conditions really are these days. So you got to ask again, do we really want to sustain this mess? I'll close with a benediction from the Bishop of London who said, we talk of sustainable development and, sus and su sustainable economies, but it's time to talk about restorative development and restorative economies. So let's make a resolution. I know it's not January 1st, but you know, it's always a good time to make a positive resolution, right? And it kind of reminds me of one of my favorite cartoons. And can you tell I like cartoons? Uh, one of my favorite cartoons is a couple of lions on New Year's Day. Uh, they're making their New Year's resolution. And one of the lions says, this year, I resolved to eat more vegetarians. <laughs> so let's make a resolution climb out of our silos a bit more and uh, find those other regenerates uh, hiding in their silos and uh, work together to uh, more effectively revitalize our communities. Sound good?